I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast, recommending it to friends, and sharing it on social media. I also want to let you know about some new projects I've got. I'm now offering three different workshops on great Hebrew men, on great Hebrew women, and on Hebrew. If you would like to zoom me into your community for one session or for a whole series, just get in touch and we'll customize it to your community. Best ways to get me are by email, mersimcha at gmail.com, by Twitter, at mersimcha, or by Facebook. You can find me on the Two Christians and a Jew Facebook page. All that's in the description below. Welcome to Two Christians and a Jew, the podcast where we look at how Christians and Jews read the Hebrew scriptures differently and what difference it makes in our lives. I'm Frank Taylor. I'm Marisim Chapanzer, and today we'll be looking into Zechariah chapter 4, which is deeply related to the holiday we Jews are celebrating right now, which is Hanukkah. Well, happy Hanukkah. I'm Jen Jones, and I'm happy to welcome today our guest, Mark Boda, who is a professor of Old Testament at McMaster University and at McMaster Divinity College. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be here. This is an awesome format. I love it. Well, you've spent quite a bit of time in Zechariah over the years. You started out a while ago with a commentary on both Haggai and Zechariah, and then you wrote 900 pages on Zechariah alone. That's true. I have written a little bit on that. Yeah, and a couple <laughs> monographs that came out just after that commentary on called Exploring Zechariah were all the essays I had written over the years at conferences came together in two volumes. So, And that one's available online, so that's even free. Just put in Exploring Zechariah, Mark Boda, and you'll get it free from the SBLANEM. It's a peer-reviewed scholarly uh, series, but I think it's I wanted to publish it with that group because it'd be accessible for people. Oh, perfect. That will be a great resource. Mayor, have you spent a lot of time in Zechariah? I have not spent a lot of time in Zechariah. There are a few sections of Zechariah that I've spent some time with. The section that I will be looking at today is part of the Haftarah, part of the prophets reading that we have on the Shabbat that comes within Hanukkah. So this is something that I do look at every year. And then the end of Zechariah is something that I look at every year also because that's another Haftarah, another one of the prophetic readings that we have in conjunction with the holiday. But otherwise, a lot of Zechariah is just, it. this is not a book I know well. I, you know, I read these visions and I don't really know what they mean. And I kind of think that it's probably not such a great idea for me to wildly speculate about what they might mean. But in terms of my not knowing, I figure I'm in pretty good company because Zechariah keeps looking at the angel going, and what's this? Oh, for sure. I have to say that that is probably my favorite moment in Zechariah. It happens repeatedly, but like, that's very relatable. Like you're showing me this wild stuff and what does this mean? (laughs) I feel like that's a lot like life. I find Zechariah more relatable than maybe most, and maybe I'll dive into later why that is, but uh, yeah, it's, this is one of those things that I've probably only read once or twice in a Bible reading plan and not really thought a lot of other than, well, that's weird. I, I think what we'll do is I'll just go ahead and read Zechariah 4. And I'm going to read from the NIV. Maybe uh, what we'll do is after I read through that, Mark, if you want to give us a little bit of a quick summary as to how we got to Zechariah 4 once I finish reading, that'd probably be helpful. This is titled uh, in the NIV, The Gold Lampstand and the Two Olive Trees. 
when the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me, as a man who was wakened from his sleep, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, <sighs> it's great. Like, I just told you I don't know what they mean. And now yeah. you're <laughs> what? You word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, <laughs> not by might nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. When the word of the Lord came to me, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hands. Uh, yeah. Ugh, my vision keeps fading out, so I'm going to have to switch to something bigger. I'm slowly losing my vision. so this gets. A Are you hard. sticking with the NIV, though? We had a very intense conversation about translations coming into yes. this episode. Yes, we are sticking to the NIV for this. Um, I just have to switch to my screen because... Here, I'll finish it. Oh, thank you. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise day, the day of small things since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel? Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, I know that you're working on the NIV translation committee now, Mark, but you don't fully adopt this same translation no i don't that goes back well i you, you you the two of you threw me off because frank began with the niv 1984 and you continue with the ninth or the or the 2000 uh the 2011 one so i was well i was okay i was wondering which one we're going to be working with here uh, of course i'm working with the post 2011 which will be 2000 probably 25 or something like that on the niv committee but yeah there might be some revisions when it, when it comes to uh to this translation we'll yeah. see of course you know it takes a lot to overturn a translation if you know there's you have to have a lot of votes to be able to overturn it there's a lot of scholars around the circle that are discussing it yeah. Well, there's a bunch of different things. I mean, for those who are not familiar with the book of Zechariah, maybe you could give us just like a two minute overview of these night visions at the beginning of the book, kind of what's going on. And then maybe we could talk about some of the, the key aspects because this chapter has been quite debated within scholarship, but also the idea of the leaders is a big issue in the, yeah. the post-exilic community is a big issue in this chapter and in this whole section. And you've got kind of a unique take that I find very helpful. You know, the book of Zechariah really is often divided into two major parts. And there's even people who write commentaries separate on the two parts of the book. So Zechariah 1 to 8 is, is the one that's more rooted into the historical context of the restoration community, that community that came back from exile and that began to rebuild this, this, new, this new province within the Persian, the Persian uh, Empire. 
The second half of the book, Zechariah 9 to 14, though, is not specifically dated. And so there's been lots of speculation with it. And it has a lot of similarities to the book of Malachi. It has the same, what we call the superscription, that is the opening words of the section that introduce it, are the same in Zechariah 9, Zechariah 12, and Malachi. So it seems to be three of these three units at the end. Now, the part, the part that you're talking about, just Zechariah 1 to 8, at the core of it are these night visions. Now, Janet, you wanted to say something. I was just going to say, and so like you see the second part of Zechariah tying to Malachi, we also see the first part of Zechariah really tying to Haggai. Yeah, and that's why if you take a look at exploring Zechariah, you'll see that I argue for what's called a Haggai to Malachi uh, unit, that this was a unit that existed as a prophetic, almost like corpus, prior to what we call the Book of the Twelve in the Hebrew Bible, which is the minor prophets in most Christian Bibles, but we call it the Book of the Twelve. Prior to its incorporation, there appears to have been this collection of Haggai to Malachi, and they are sewn together and they show connections all throughout them. But you'll see a lot more similarities between Haggai and Zechariah 1 to 8 than you will between 9 to 14 and Haggai and Zechariah 1 to 8. Uh, But this first section, Zechariah 1 to 8, really is it has a kind of a bracket around it of two key sermons by Zechariah. One in Zechariah chapter one, the first six verses, and the other in Zechariah seven and eight, there's another kind of sermon that Zechariah gives. And both these sermons really focus attention in on the issue of repentance. Now, repentance is the key sign of the restoration. If you go back to the Torah and you read Leviticus 26 and you read Deuteronomy 30, you'll find very soon on that repentance usually identified by Shuv, but also the confessing of the sins of some of one's forefathers, Leviticus 26, 39, and 40, is part of the agenda for the restoration to happen. So not surprisingly, Zechariah begins by giving a summary of the earlier prophets and saying, their basic message was, return to me and I'll return to you. And at the end of that first sermon, it says that this, this community returned to God, it says. That's why then the night visions are given. And the first night vision, God makes this this claim, I am returning to you, or even if it's in the perfect, I have returned to you, and I will presence myself with you. So in a sense, he's saying, I've watched and seen your repentance. I'm responding with now my return. And what sets off a whole series of quite positive night visions, these visions that were given to Zechariah in the night, in the midst of which there's all kinds of things that we call prophetic oracles. So visions rarely stand on their own as just a picture. They often are accompanied by a prophetic word, some verbal piece that comes in at the end and kind of really nails down what this message is is all about. And you'll see this in most of the night visions. There will be these elements of a prophetic message. It's setting up. It's similar to what we call prophetic synax, where you see prophets in Jeremiah and Ezekiel who are kind of um, doing this act. It might be they're, they're cooking a meal over, well, human dung. It's kind of an odd one in Ezekiel, or it, it may be walking naked, okay, or barefoot or whatever. And these synacts, these things that the prophets are doing, rarely stand on their own. They're usually backed up by then, go and then declare to the people this message. So that's what happens here in this very visual section in the night visions. And it's, it's a series of eight visions, 
And the one that we're looking at is right at the very center. The two on the outside, the first one, shows a group of horsemen that have gathered around uh, this ravine where they encounter the captain of the Lord's host, the angel of the Lord, the, the Malachadonai as an entity, and they're reporting back about the conditions in the world. So they're reconnaissance, reconnaissance horses. The same colors of horses or similar colors of horses appear in the last vision. This time, though, they're tied to chariots. They're coming out from the presence of, of the Lord and they're heading out into the north and south country in order to bring the judgment of the Lord upon those nations that were abusive towards Israel. So that tells you there's some kind of a progression in the night visions. At the very center, though, of the night visions, in the fourth and fifth visions, which is Zechariah 3 and 4, which really lies within this Haftorah portion that's, that's, that's read during the Shabbat of the Hanukkah, goes, I think, from 2-something, maybe 2-10 over to 3-7 or before 7 somewhere around there, mid-part. Something of the like that. Yeah, that's something right, like that. Yeah. Um, it's an odd kind of place to start and end. But anyways, it, it kind of brings in this whole section about these two leaders or two kind of uh, key leadership groups that were very key in this early period of restoration. So typically when we talk about the leadership of Israel in the ancient world, we talk about at least three key leadership groups. We talk about the king, we talk about the priests, and then we talk about the prophets. And those were three key. There's others, of course, that are, that are involved in leadership. And you find all three of those talked about in these two middle, middle night visions. And we won't talk about Zechariah chapter 3, but the focus is in on the high priest. And this is the Zedekite priest, uh, who is kind of the chosen line of priests from the Aaronic line, who are reinstated in the person of Joshua after the exile. And reference is made there to this figure called the Sprout, as I call Zamach uh, in Hebrew, which is an expected figure from Jeremiah 23 and 33, that after that, that out of the exile will come this, this sprout figure, this Samach figure, which is a royal figure, according to Jeremiah. And so my view of Zechariah 3 is that because the high priest is being reinstated, and because Jeremiah 33 said that the covenants with the priests and with the kings are, are perpetual and are intertwined, that means then get ready because there's a Zamach coming and the fulfillment of Jeremiah 23 and 33. In the next chapter, the one that we're looking at, Zechariah 4, we have one of the most difficult visions of the whole sequence, where we have this vision of these, these the, 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 the lampstand, right? And we appear to be within the, the holy place. We're within very close to the presence, the presence of the Lord. And we have this vision. And the emphasis on it is upon two numbers, the number seven and the number two. And that's what's emphasized. In the revelation of this, this golden lampstand that has seven lamps around it, and then it has two olive trees that somehow are above it possibly and are pouring in oil directly into the lampstand. That's the picture that's given. And of course, uh, we're not sure why the angel, why the Malach says, do you not know what these are? I mean, who would know what these are? I mean, he probably knows, he understands that there's some kind of a lampstand. Uh, but why are these two olive trees there that are pouring, uh, pouring uh, in? So then he, he unpacks it in the second half of the vision, which is what he always does. This, this interpreting angel that walks alongside Zechariah uh, interprets it and he identifies and he focuses attention. He says that the, the seven are related to the eyes of Adonai that reigns throughout the earth. 
And the two are related to branches or olive trees. There's confusion there in that specific verse. But somehow the source of this oil that's coming from these olive trees directly into, into the lampstand, which means it'll have a perpetual flow of this perfect oil that doesn't even touch, in a sense, uh, human hands. So uh, in the middle of it, though, there's this really odd piece, right? Yeah. And it literally comes mid-sentence. And if you took out this middle section where he talks to Zerubbabel, you actually would have identical structure to all the other night visions. So in the middle of the night vision, suddenly there's this in interrupted piece where now this Malak speaks to Zerubbabel and he uses language that we know from the, from the broader ancient Near East. And I was involved in a massive project where we studied temple building in the ancient Near East. Can I inter interrupt yeah, you ahead. for just one moment? We're now talking about the second half of chapter four. Is that We're right? We're talking that's about the in the middle of, the, of chapter four, there mm -hmm. is the piece that's part of the half Torah, the very mm -hmm. end of the half Torah, where it says, so he said to me, so, you know, do you not know what these are? Verse five, no, my Lord, I replied. And so you're expecting him to say, as he says in all the other night visions, oh, these are, well, if you look for these are, it doesn't occur until you get down to verse 10, in which then you have the word, these are the seven eyes of the Lord. Now, it's a little obscured in the NIV, but if you if you follow the Hebrew text, there's then a, these are the seven, okay, that's what you were expecting them to say. But instead of saying, these are, which is what he always says, suddenly he breaks into this prophetic word. This is the word of Adonai to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become a level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. In the ancient world, we have a 3,000 years of history of temple building that shows that whenever you built a temple, you cleared the space, creating a mountain of rubble. You took out stones from the previous temple. You set it aside until it was ready. And then the royal figure, always the king, would take the brick, which was called the first brick. And that's why I don't like the word capstone because it's, 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 it's not a capstone, it's a foundation brick. Yeah. And that, that, that king would bring out the first stone, the foundation stone, and would lay it, you know, look as if he's doing it, but he's really not doing it. So in similar to the way that we use a shovel that we paint, you know, gold, and if people stand around and dig into the ground as a kind of a ritual act that we're beginning the building, in the same way in the ancient world, we can see this, and I've gone through 3,000 years and, and hundreds of texts that do this, that show us that a key step is where the royal figure brings out this capstone. So this is a word of encouragement that then comes from the prophet to Zerubbabel, and it happens in two, there's two stages to it in the middle part of, the, uh, of, this, of this vision. At the very end, though, the most controversial part of Zechariah 4 is the final verse, which in the NIV reads, so he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And there's lots of controversy about who these two anointed are and whether they are anointed. Uh, within within a uh, large stream, within uh, in, in, in the rabbis, clearly the, these are seen as the two messiahs. 
And this comes out in, uh, in the Qumran material as well, that the two messiahs that was expected within Second Temple Judaism are this, is, is this messiah of Aaron and a messiah of Israel or a messiah of David. So there's a priestly and there is a, a royal figure. And so people have looked in this passage and said, hey, Joshua was in the previous chapter and Zerubbabel's here. The two here must be Joshua and, uh, and Zerubbabel because they're the royal and priestly figures of this period. That, that is the, yeah. the very, very obvious reading of it. And that's the first reading that Rashi brings. And then he brings exactly. the second Exactly. Point. And I mean, I've got, there's some great articles on this. Craig Evans has an awesome one on the two sons of oil in, at Qumrana, but he does all the rabbinic material to show the connection. From my reading of it, long before I ever looked at this other text, uh, I, I, I noticed immediately that the term used here is not the term for anointed that's used uh, elsewhere within the Hebrew Bible. It's actually says the sons of fresh oil, which makes sense because this oil that's being used here is a term that's used for oil that comes unmanufactured from the tree directly. It's what you take from the tree in the harvest, and then you may be involved in manufacturing it. That manufactured oil term is the one that we typically associate with, with anointing. But this one is that they are called the two sons of fresh oil who serve the Lord of all the earth. It's that phrase that they are the sons of the fresh oil and the image of the true trees that are pouring forth the oil that made me think about the fact that these trees are providing the oil. They're not receiving the oil. That is, these trees are not being anointed by their own oil they are actually supplying the oil for anointing. And that suggests to me that these figures are not those that receive the oil, which is a priest and a king in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, but rather the typical person who gives the anointing oil is the prophetic figure who's anointing the king, is bringing that oil onto the people or onto whoever's being anointed. That then made sense, and I'll just, this is my last thing, made sense to me of why this prophetic oracle, this prophetic word is given in the middle of the chapter. Because this prophetic word, which comes to Zerubbabel, is a prophetic word of the anointing of the prophet upon this royal figure, saying it is by my spirit, the anointing spirit, that you will be able to accomplish the rebuilding of the temple. I did find out after this, that this is actually how Revelation chapter 11 uses this specific prophetic word. Although I didn't find it till I found Ken Strand's article and began to look at it. Oh, this is actually how Revelation 11 interprets this particular piece. We see debates about leadership in the post-exilic period in Jerusalem are really rooted in some of this passage as well as in Zechariah 3. Yeah, I mean, there's, we have these three major major leadership groups that, that are at work clearly in the restoration period. And the first one that appears to, you know, out, out of the gates is, is the priesthood, which totally makes sense when you, when you read the need for the rebuilding of the temple. And it's really the temple that is rebuilt first. The city of Jerusalem, as we find out from Nehemiah, has to wait a long time for its, its, its true restoration. You know, by numbers, by Nehemiah 11, uh, he says he, he has to force one out of 10 people to come into the city because it's so empty and uh, the wall is still, is still a mess in his time. And, you know, he's, he's in 445 in his first governorship. That's a long time from the period that we're talking about, which is uh, 5, 520 BC. Uh, so there's going to, it's the, it's the priesthood that needs to be there first, of course, for sure, because of the temple and the need to reestablish 
the, the religious and cultic life of, of Israel. They, they need to get back into gear. And so the first thing they do in Ezra chapter three is they, is they rebuild the altar. So that means they can start to begin to be involved in, in the various uh, feastal, feastal structure. And right after that, they begin to build uh, the temple around it. Would it be fair to say that when you're looking at this, that you don't necessarily see, you get this idea of a diarchy between the priests and the the royal figure do you not see that happening in this passage do you see something else going on well of course that's it, when you go with calling them the two anointed ones which i don't think is a good translation right that and if you do hold to the view that you see the the two of them that might suggest the diarchy which is understood right. in later times and of course there's a priestly ascendancy over time you know after Zerubbabel we we have records and seals that have been uncovered in archaeology of his, of his son-in-law, and we have also seals of his of his daughter, Shelomit, and Shelomit is mentioned in First Chronicles three in the Davidic genealogy. Now that's pretty odd. I mean, in the ancient world, you do not usually have a lot of women in genealogies. Yeah. But it mentions him having these seven sons, and then it says that he has these. It has she, he has a daughter named Shalomit, which means that this Shalomit, who is on the seal, who's called the handmaiden of this governor, must be his, his daughter. And probably this guy's way to get the governorship is through his wife. And of course, their children would be Davidic. But what we find after that is no more Davidic governors after that point in the seal record that we have from the, from the fifth century which then suggests to us that the Davidic line, although still robust, according to 1 Chronicles 3, well into the Greek period, uh, no longer has, it has the ability to governor, uh, be a governor within, within Yehud, this, 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 uh, this province of Persia. And so there's, there's, of course, questions about then, in the midst of that vacuum, of traditional leadership, the priests, though, continue on. The, the Zedekite line continues on to the point where they even have seals. I mean, they even have, sorry, they even have coins that are associated with the priesthood, which is showing you a lot of power. Now, under the Maccabees, of course, things will shift considerably, and they will, in some ways, probably be able to leverage and why this would be important to the Haftarah portion in the Maccabean period is because they are truly a priestly family who have royal royal prerogatives. Uh, Deborah Rook from Oxford has written a book that says, don't push the diarchy too early. I mean, it's a diarchy, but don't push the priesthood taking over too early. Uh, there still is some clear separations between civil and religious uh, governing and rulership in this early period, but there's clearly a strong sense of the priesthood pushing forward for obvious reasons because the temple is being rebuilt. And I think Zechariah sides in the early period more with the Zerubbabel side of the camp and says, hey, slow down, slow down, wait for the Zamach figure, wait for the Davidic figure to come, the Zerubbabel, who's a, a Davidic figure to come, because you need to have that, you need to have both. And so Zechariah 6 has both of them together, sitting on what appear to be thrones, uh, but the emphasis is on the Davidic figure, Zerubbabel, and there is some role to be played by the high priest, uh, Joshua. So part of what you're saying raises a question about who Zerubbabel is. Great question. So what, this audio is ridiculous. I have a drum circle taking place right outside my window. Um, is that coming through the audio? Not very much. That's pretty good. Okay, that's encouraging. 
So Zorobabel is identified by some people with the Tzemach, who you mentioned earlier back from, uh, I think that was the first chapter. And then he's also identified sometimes with Nehemiah himself. So Zerubbabel isn't necessarily a future figure, but potentially a present figure. Everybody agrees, though, that we are talking about somebody in the Davidic line. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I've written the one who has most vigorously argued for Zerubbabel as Nehemiah is Diana Edelman. And if you just type my name in, Mark Boda, Diana Edelman, uh, it'll come up my review of her book. I, I just don't buy, I don't buy her theory to put those two figures together. She kind of brings uh, these two phases into kind of one and uh, collapses them. And I don't, I don't see a justification for that and give my arguments for it there. But some would see the, the Zamach, uh, I see Zamach as Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was, was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was, who was the second last king of the kingdom of Judah. And he was the one that was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and placed under house arrest or whatever. And at the end of second Kings, he's the one that is released from prison. And we actually, when archeologists went into um, Nebuchadnezzar's palace and did their work, they found the food ration documents of Jehoiakim and his sons. They very ones with his names from Yehuda. It, it blows my uh, mind. That one amazing. is amazing. That's and it amazing. says in that's 2 Kings 25 that he released him from prison and he ate at the king's table, which means he got rations from the palace. And we have those actual ration tablets that were found in uh, in Babylon. Wow. What that, a that was find. a cool discovery. But that's Zerubbabel is the grandson. His name is Zerubbabel, which is the seed of, ba of, of Babel, the seed of Babylon. He's clearly a child who grew up in exile and comes back. And he is this key figure of, of Davidic hope. I think Zerubbabel is Zamach in this context. But there are some who uh, try to divide the two from one another and say the Zamach is an, a future figure who comes later after Zerubbabel's demise or whatever happened to Zerubbabel. I've also seen grounds for saying that. So the, the other interpretation that I saw of Zemach was that it was referring to Mashiach, that it's yeah. referring to the Messiah. But to say the obvious thing, Zerubbabel, if he is essentially the king, then he is the Messiah. Right, he is. And I think when you read through the final piece in the night visions, which is 6, 9 to 15, it is very clearly uh, a prophecy that is identifying Zerubbabel as the one who was building this temple. That's what they're talking about, not some future temple way off into the future. He's talking about this time. And that's one of the challenges when it comes to working with prophetic material. A lot of people, when they hear the prophet, they think immediately future. They think of foretelling. And that's, that's become a very dominant mode, as opposed to saying that really 90% of the prophetic literature is speaking to its context, to its own time and place. It has elements of the future usually the short future for those and some into the far future with expectation and hope. But the vast majority is into its time. And these night visions really speak relevantly into the community of the restoration uh, Jewish community that came back from Babylon and the issues that they were facing. And it's very encouraging. It's mostly encouraging words to them. Uh, but chapter five reminds them there's some enduring issues that you need to deal with in Zechariah five, but most of it is, is some of the most positive prophetic literature that's, that's out there. And when I was in seminary, uh, we just happened to be studying Zechariah in my prophets class with Raymond Dillard. 
and uh, we were translating through Zechariah. So, I mean, I was a, I had a little church and that church got to hear about Zechariah because I didn't have time to study something else. So uh, out of my translations, that was my first encounter with Zechariah. And I saw it as so encouraging to my congregation because of the, of the messages throughout it, which are trying to say, uh, don't worry, Adonai is with you. That goes way back, right, at the beginning of my academic career. Yeah, one of the things that I find really interesting, and so this is me as a layman, but I'm also, I come from a family of carpenters. Um, I'm a third generation carpenter, uh, more or less. I keep on looking back at verse nine, where the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house, his hands shall also finish it. And when I look at, and I'm sorry, I'm reading from JPS for that. Yeah, that's fine. That's good. I look at that and I think of the kind of hope that comes from there because construction projects are long and difficult and they take a very, very long time. And, and they do that today uh, if you want something to last and they would have taken even longer then. And it's incredibly reassuring to read that his hands are laying that foundation, which is clearing things out, taking that cornerstone, which is great because you have to start off with things perfectly square because having one really good square stone sets the path for how the entire building gets started. Mm -hmm. um, there's a fun joke in the U.S. Army where um, th there's a phrase in construction called good enough for government work. And that stems from the Army where they allowed uh, a tolerance of, I think, about three quarters of an inch to an inch per eight feet, meaning that you could build a multi-story building that would be several feet off from specifications, incredibly poor standards. And so for a building to last in ancient times, that had to be an incredibly squared stone. It had to be trued up. You had to be able to rely on it on all sides. And I, I know this from building furniture. I was lamenting before that I, I'm gonna have to take vacation time to finish my construction projects for my clients. I spend a lot of time getting things trued up it's so reassuring to read that he's laying, or actually he has laid that foundation and that his hands are going to finish it too. So he's at the start and just thinking of how they've cleared that out, like this so feels hopeful. It so feels hopeful that, you know, setting aside any future predictions, this is a great message of encouragement now mm -hmm. for Zerubbabel. It's within your means for it to be finished. Is, is that a reasonable takeaway? Oh, that's that is that is definitely that is my takeaway from this for this community is it would have been so overwhelming to do this to do this work in this is the ancient world. We don't have bulldozers. We don't have all of that to be able to work with the great temple of Solomon and the remains that come from it in order to do this work was incredibly difficult. And in the ancient world, the foundation was essential. And the reason for that is because the foundation, the foundation that you wanted to build on was always on sacred ground. You, you would usually would not go to some other spot. It might be a beautiful flat field. You say, why don't you build the temple over there? But the worry is always in the ancient world that might be defiled ground. There might be a dead body in there. There might be a dead carcass. Who knows what's happened in that land? But if you build on the foundation of a previous sacred building, you're safe. And so all of the emperors, these are hundreds of texts that are, were found within these foundation stones. So the stones have little cavities with all this stuff. And, and there's a document in there every time would always say the meticulous care. And there's even one place where Nabonidus, who's the last emperor of Babylon, starts attacking Nebuchadnezzar because, ah, oh, that slug, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't 
do this properly. He should have cleared the foundation more appropriately on this, on this temple land. And that's why it fell down so quickly. And we're going to do the foundation correctly. And Nabonidus was a, priest, a priestess's kid. So Nabonidus, this emperor, was going to do it right. So the foundation was key work. And actually, most of our documents are related to the foundation laying. Mm-hmm. But Victor Hurovitz, who was down, at, used to be, he's passed away now, down at the University of the Negev, I think that's what it's called, uh, down in the south part of Israel, and was a Pythagorean uh, in the Negev. Yeah. He wrote an excellent book on uh, temple rebuilding and, and tied it to 1 Kings uh, 8, and 1 Kings 6 to 8, and throughout 1 Kings, the rebuilding, the building of the Temple of Solomon originally. There's more emphasis in that text on the actual dedication, which would be what you're talking about, Frank which is looked at in the future as being, you know, when it's complete, you're going to complete uh, this place. And that is the bookends of this, of this project. And less people think that this is just arcane stuff with how ancient people built temples. This is actually extremely contemporary. You know, people could say, well, why can't you rebuild the third temple in some other spot? You know, why just pick another mountain? No. It has to be in this particular spot. This right. was the spot that was picked out for uh, ruin of the genocide. I mean, this is the this is the threshing floor. This is the place. Yes, that was identified. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and also enduring need for sacred for sacred ground. Well, you were saying also about there could be a dead body buried in the ground someplace. There's a great concern about Tuman Tara about uh, purity and impurity. And the, the essential issue, the root issue there is really contact with death. Yeah. This is very contemporary stuff. I'd love to hear a bit more about the Haftarah of the Shabbat of Hanukkah and ways in which this informs the celebration of, of Hanukkah. I mean, that's not you know my strong suit in terms of uh, I'm using mostly these ancient texts more and less than the second temple of Judaism so the miracle that we talk about with Hanukkah we talk about the Greeks the the real enemy in the the Hanukkah story was not the Yavanim the Greeks but the Mityavnim the Jews who were Hellenizing themselves and reneging on their own identity the Yavanim or the Mityavnim or whoever it was precisely, they defiled the temple. So once the, the Maccabees triumph, they go and they rededicate the temple. They do Hanukkah Tabayit, they rededicate the house. And when they do that, they have to purify things, they have to bring in new things, they, this and that. And olive oil is a real issue. You need pure olive oil, but if they have defiled all the olive oil there. It's going to take you a little while to pick some new olive oil. They found only one day's worth of pure olive oil for the rekindling of the menorah, and they went for it. But instead of burning for just one day, it burned for eight days, which is why we have this eight-slotted menorah, this eight-slotted lamp that we light for Hanukkah. So it's the eight isn't just doing one better than the seven in the temple. The eight is corresponding to the number of days that the oil burned and the amount of time that it took us to get some new olive oil into the, the temple and to, to make it impurity. So there's a very interesting machloket, a very interesting debate in the Gemara between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, between Hillel and Shammai, two archetypical uh, disputants in the Talmud. Shammai says, well... You start by lighting all eight, and then each day you take away one, because obviously you know, the, you're drawing closer to the end 
of the extended period of light here, right? Whereas Hillel says, wait, hold on, no, no, no. Do it exactly the opposite. Because the first day, like, okay, light one, because it's one day that is burning. The second day, whoa, the miracle is intensifying now, so light two. Third day, even more intense, so keep building up. And so if you look at the uh, Hanukkiot, at the Hanukkah lamps of your Jewish neighbors, you'll see that they're adding one each night as we, we go through Hanukkah. There's another Hanukkah miracle, though, which is the military victory. And this is kind of, you know, if we were to go into the halls of academia and talk about Jewish history in this period, you know, this is the miracle that people are going to focus on more in terms of Jewish history. Like, okay, this thing in the temple did it, didn't it? You know, we, you know, we're very skeptical about these things, but there was some kind of astounding military victory here. Even if the, the miracle is that the Greeks didn't send enough reinforcements. So the Maccabees were able to pull off what they pulled off. Like it's, that's still a miracle because you have a very, very powerful army against an essentially ragtag bunch of, you know, leftover Jews who are just trying to do whatever they can. And the Maccabees wound up being quite powerful. And that is, uh, that's something that we actually talk about in our, in our prayers related to, to Hanukkah. But then you can wonder, well, what on earth does this military victory really have to do with this thing in the temple? You're just taking two things that kind of occurred at the same time and you're putting them together in one holiday and, and you use one miracle to be kind of a symbol for both, and one you talk about in your tefillah, and like, like it, it doesn't, it kind of lacks coherence, not to mention that the political victory that starts with this military victory was very short-lived, because the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, were a dynasty that was extremely problematic. They were a priestly family that wound up taking over the, the kingship as well, which I understand at that point, in the development of, of Torah, it could be very difficult to understand, well, okay, it has to be, you know, David, right? It has to be a descendant of David. Like, okay, maybe that wasn't so clear at that point. This was a profound mistake. They, they took over all this power and they wound up getting in bed with Rome in order to save themselves from Greece and doing all sorts of terrible things. Whatever political victory there was, was, was extremely limited in a sense. So what, what are we really tying together here? And I think that that's really what emerges so powerfully precisely here in Zechariah, in this prophecy. After you hear this in synagogue, you hear the words of Zechariah read, what are you going to go tell your kids when you go home? You should tell them, lo b'chayel ki im It's not by might, not by military strength, not by koach, not by force, Rather, it's only in my spirit. There's no sense in which this military victory even makes, makes sense. Like This can't be. And even if it was, does it really matter? The part of it that matters is that there was this effort that was put in that was doomed. There was no way this was going to be successful, but we did it anyway. One of the deep themes that we talk about with Hanukkah, we talk about Hod. We talk about the, the glory that's manifest in it. Very frequently, the glory of a battle does not involve winning. You think of the, the Spartans who were defending against the Persian army at, uh, ugh, I'm not going to get the name right, the, the, with a TH. Thermopylae. Thank Thermopylae. you. Thermopylae, thank you. <laughs> right? The glory of that 
that battle, the glory of those Spartans there, the glory of a military victory is frequently not, well, it's frequently not victory, but they did it. And what's manifest there is really not Chayel. It's not military might. It's not Koach. It's not an ability to force things. It's Ruchi. It's, it's only the, the spirit of of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the spirit of God that that's present there, that's able to, this is the, the fundamental force of, of history. And we go through history, you know, we live lives as if, you know, we're doing things. We are doing things, but we're agents. I think that kind of dissolves the dichotomy that you were talking about before. Like, okay, I mean, are they human agents or how can human agents become the eyes of God? And the point is that if these human agents are part of that Ruach, part of that spirit that's running through all of the work of creation, then all that becomes possible. That's also the the oil. The truth is we, we also talk about Hanukkah as the end of miracles. Hmm. And we're happy about that. The other place we talk about that is with Esther, right? These are the two rabbinic holidays, Purim and Hanukkah, right? Esther, famously, this is a book that doesn't mention the name of God at all. And Esther literally means in Hebrew, not in uh, Farsi, but uh, Esther in Hebrew means hidden. She's called the dawn, Ayelet Shachar. That's Psalm 22. Why is she called the dawn? Because no more miracles. What? Yeah, we don't need miracles. Miracles are a big problem. When people go on thinking like, oh, we need God to come in and interfere with, no, that's not Ruhi. That's not the spirit of God. The spirit of God is manifest in everything. If you need miracles, you need some kind of interference in, in the natural progression of things. It's like a violation. It's like, what? Isn't there integrity in this, this process of the development of a world? Like, who needs that kind of interference? It always causes breakdowns in faith afterwards. People look to miracles for faith. It's a terrible thing to do. Like, the, the place to find faith is to, to see the manifestation of of, of, of that Ruach, to, to see the, the flow in history, to see how things are developing. And that's, that I think is really what we're talking about when we're seeing that flow of oil into the, the menorah and the vision mm-hmm. of Zechariah, this, this pure flow through, from those human agents even, whoever they happen to be, uh, however we understand them. But there's, there's this flow through history, there's this flow through humanity that's able to, to light up the world, to illuminate everything, to manifest that ruach, that spirit. And, oh, actually, the other half of that Rashi, that comment by Rashi about who are the B'nai Yitzhar, who are the sons of, I, I love how you pointed out how it was fresh oil rather than processed oil. Who are they? The, the other explanation that Rashi brings is Yitzhar should be read to sound like Yetzer, the Yetzer Atov and the Yetzer Hara, mm. the good inclination and the evil inclination. Mm. Like, what? Those are the two things that are driving oil into the lamp? That sounds crazy. Okay, the good inclination, maybe, like, tell me the good inclination and, like, an additional level of good inclination, maybe, but, like, the evil inclination? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally important. That's absolutely essential. Because otherwise, how does how does the world develop? Well, it sounds like, and please correct me if I'm not pulling all this together, but it sounds like fundamentally what you walk away from this text with then, Mayor, is the importance of the spirit of God that continues to work 
And I think that ties back to some of what I've seen you write about, Mark, and the ongoing relevance of this passage for for Christians today. Is that, did I, am I misrepresenting either of you <laughs> or both of you? No, you're not. You're not misrepresenting me. I think, you know, for me, seeing this prophetic word about God's spirit at work, and I think here encouraging the people through the prophetic word, uh, places that as so central to this work that's going on. Because, of course, it, it means a lot of physical work and there's physicality to it. So rather than the military piece, I'm speaking about the actual work that would have to go on in the, in the temple that it is this encouragement. And that's what Ezra 5 tells us, that, that God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage this group of Zerubbabel and the elders because they were in an in a impasse. They had stopped building. They couldn't complete this. So I, I kind of interpret it because of the, the prophetic word is all about foundation laying and the finishing of the temple, that there is this encouragement that comes from God that lies at the very center of this entire complex of night visions, and it really gets that focus onto this my spirit, the ruhi that Mayor's talked about. So I think we share that element together, definitely. Of the, and it's interesting to me. That's why I was wondering why the Hanukkah reading uh, after it ends in halfway through Zechariah chapter four and starts, you know, just near the end of uh, Zechariah two, I think two ten uh, in the in the English text. It starts kind of with that God returning to Zion and the people coming back and covenant being renewed, even possibly by people that are from outside the Jewish community and then God coming from his throne and then into the, the vision of the priest and the ideal land. And then finally, and Yom Kippur, I would say, and then Zechariah 4. So it's an interesting complex, but it ends here. I think that's a nice takeaway there because that's would be some of the last words that would be heard in the after reading is this a big emphasis right near the end at the climax of, of the Ruhi. So I think that's a great place in a sense to end it and to keep focus on because that's really what this community had to experience. And I can see why this text became so important within the Hanukkah tradition. It just seems to just totally shout uh, that, that tradition. Yeah. Well, I think that that kind of brings out all around. We've, you know, tackled what I think for many of us is a very challenging passage. And I appreciate the way that Mark's helped us to see it in the, you know, original setting, but also maybe tease out some of the implications for Christians. But then also, Mayor, I think, you know, I don't think we're as, in some ways, there are some distinctions, but I think there's a lot of similarities in how this passage matters for us today. So... I think that was great. Helpful. Very, very relevant. Mark, thank you so much. It's oh, really oh, tremendous, everything that you brought in here. And uh, I've been looking at your commentary on uh, on Zachariah, and uh, it's, it's wonderful, the, the work that you've done. It's amazing to see. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. That was a joy. Yeah. Well, 900 pages, there's a lot to be said. <laughs> so, well, for those in our audience who've enjoyed hearing what Mark has to say, yes, he has the two commentaries that I've mentioned, the one on Haggai Zechariah in the New International Version Application Commentary Series, um, but also the more detailed one is in what what's called the NICOT series, is the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. Is that right, right, Mark? That's right. Mm -hmm. um, but he has some, some other work that 
uh, gets at other areas. The heartbeat of the Old Testament theology really um, introduces the creeds that are used over and over in the Old Testament and ties them then into the New Testament. So you kind of start to get a biblical theological approach, which Mark, I know biblical theology from a Christian perspective, both the Old and New Testament is something you're passionate about. And there you also have a volume called Return to Me, a Biblical Theology of Repentance. Yeah, yeah, that built off of an earlier book that was just on the Hebrew Bible called A Severe Mercy, where I looked at the role, in a sense, how the how the Hebrew Bible deals with sin, basically. And I just go through all the parts, the, the Torah, Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, uh, book by book, I cover most of them. Can't always in every in every book uh, pull something out of the hat, but and uh, that one's just focused on Hebrew Bible. But out of that, I actually originally sought to write a book on repentance, and it was too large for that series. So I took some pieces from that and then developed them further and moved into the New Testament as well, so people can see how important repentance is to the flow of the entire uh, the entire Hebrew Bible as well as, of course, into the New Testament and making sense then of. Why does John the Baptist show up preaching repentance? Why does Jesus show up and he's the preacher of repentance? And why do the early disciples in Acts all preach on repentance? It's because repentance is the sign of restoration. It's the sign uh, of this community that is now moving into a new a new era. So that's that's what Return to Me is about and um, kind of developed some things that I had developed earlier in the larger volume of Severe Mercy. Yeah. And then if you have been wondering how to read Judges next year, you will be having a new commentary that you co-authored with Mary Conway coming out on the book of Judges, what, late next year? Uh, it should be earlier than that, I hope. Okay. It, it's a it's a clause-by-clause Hebrew commentary on discourse, what's called discourse analysis of every clause within uh, within Judges. And uh, we just identify, of course, we're working largely with the Hebrew text and trying to show the implications of reading that Hebrew uh, for the reading of those narratives and stories. And it's it's a wild book. It's my second commentary on Judges. Judges is a wild ride for anyone that wants to really grapple with some difficult, difficult texts. But I think some texts that do speak into our world today in massive ways. Well, maybe around the time that comes out, maybe both you and Mary could join us for another. Oh, episode. yeah, that'd be fun. We could, yeah. we could tackle one of the crazier uh, texts. Yeah. Any preferences there, Mayor? Or, or Frank, do you have anything in Judges that you've always wondered about? I don't think we have time for it here. There's <laughs> many. I mean, my dogs are named Samson and Delilah. Okay, so. okay, there you go. So, I have some <laughs> questions. <laughs> I have a lot of thought about judges. I would love to. I yeah. would love for you to come on and uh, and talk that about this a bit. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, and and wow. Mary would be a great. Oh, Mary's Mary's fun. Yeah, yeah she would be awesome. So, well, let's let's put a pin on it. Let's plan on trying to revisit that in you know however many you know three six nine months when that comes out, and we'll look forward to that. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Mark. It's been great having okay. you. What a delight! Thank you. Thank you very very much.
makes sense to describe the menorah. Is this something that people know about? It's probably worth describing for people, um, scholars maybe, but I think your average lay person probably has less familiarity with it. Okay, cool. So the menorah, the candelabrum, I think is how it's sometimes translated into English, the, the lamp that we're talking about in the temple, uh, was hammered from pure gold. It had seven branches. It had a kind of floral design. If you look back in Exodus, where the, the design is described, you see that it's described in terms of flowers and buds and those kinds of things. So it's very, it's made from gold, but it, there's a lot of organic imagery here. So this has seven branches, which is in contrast with whatever you see from your Jewish neighbors right now, where you're gonna see nine branches on what we're lighting. What we're lighting now is derived from that. The lamp that we light on Hanukkah is a reference to that lamp, but it's also different. And it has eight branches because of the particular miracle of Hanukkah. So we'll, we'll come back to that, but just to stick with the menorah that was in the temple, to keep going with that for a moment. So one of the, the temple very, very fundamentally compartmentalizes space in different ways. And as you go from outside the temple, like say you start in Tel Aviv, you walk up the mountains to Jerusalem. Once you're in Jerusalem, you're in an area that has a different status in terms of the uh, Kedusha, in terms of the dedication of the holiness of this city. And then once you go onto Har Habayit, once you go onto the Temple Mount, there's a different status there. And then once you go into the Temple Courtyard, there's a different status there. And then so on and so forth, these concentric um, levels of dedication intensifying and intensifying. And the second to most intense level of Kedusha, of dedication, is the Kodesh, the holy. The, the most intense is the Kadosh Kadoshim, the holy of holies. So in the holy, you have three different kelim, uh, how do you translate that, uh, instruments, pieces of temple furniture, maybe. And that sounds kind of demeaning, I'm not sure how to say it. So you, you have three things there <laughs> that are really important. Um, that are essential to, to the temple. In the Kadosh Kadoshim, you have one thing. There you have the Aaron, you have the Ark that holds the um, the Luchot uh, that holds the, the tablets that, that Moses brought down the mountain. And then outside of that, in a separate room, the, the Kodesh, the Holy, you have three things. One is you have the table with the bread. The table has a very kind of wild design and the bread has a wild shape. I encourage you to look it up online if you don't know what I'm talking about. The other thing is the Mizbah Zahav, the Mizbah Ketor, the altar for the incense, which is there. And then the third thing is the menorah, the lamp that we're talking about now with the, the seven candles. And that lamp was kindled, rekindled each evening by, uh, with olive oil. So not candles, Kindle, candle, no, no, no candles, this is olive oil. And that you know, links up directly with this vision that we're getting from Zaharia here. So that, that rekindling is understood as a kind of rededication every day. It's a, a, 
a rededication that's almost more fundamental than the temple itself. It's almost like the temple is a part of the light of the menorah, more than the menorah is a component of the temple. As I'm listening to you, Mary, you're talking about the temple and it's making me think about a combination of things because you're very much situating the menorah, this lampstand within the temple. And and going back to this vision, part of what we're dealing with is the fact that the temple does not yet exist. And so I guess one of my questions here would be, you've got this message of hope that is explicitly given to Zerubbabel about the rebuilding, but Mark, might we see, and and this may not be there, but this very idea that the lampstand is part of the vision, is it merely the symbolism or could this also tie into part of the hope of the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the priestly service? Well, I think it is related to something future, you know, as this is being built, obviously there's, this is future yet. And we find that out from Zechariah six, that the temple's not rebuilt and it's not rebuilt for a couple more years um, uh, from this point. It doesn't, doesn't really get rebuilt to 516, 515. And we're here in five in five twenty. So it's it's under construction, obviously, through this period. So there's a hope related to it, and in a sense, I think this this vision vision casts quote unquote for the role that partial role that that this this temple will play, which is in a sense to bring the presence of God uh, on earth. Uh, his seven eyes that go throughout uh, throughout the earth is something related to him having the ability to be and see throughout the earth. And it is through this, what I would call more of a portal, it's called a portal, uh, from the heavenly council. So when you see in Isaiah 6, uh, when Isaiah sees Adonai high and lifted up, and he all he sees is the bottom part of Adonai, it appears to suggest that we have this almost portal into the very heavenly council. And this is the bottom part of it in the ark then being, and this is my view, a footstool, uh, for his feet at the very at the very bottom of that, and it's a signal of his presence. So in in that way, this is to be this portal of God's presence uh, throughout the earth, and that's why it's important to rebuild this to rebuild this temple. To build on what you're saying there, so a much earlier prophetic vision, the vision of Yaakov of Jacob, when he sees the ladder. Ladders. Yeah. We have a tradition. The, the geography is very complex, but the basic idea is that he is on the temple mount the area that will eventually become the temple when he has this vision of the ladder and when he wakes up he sees it as something more than just a ladder it's not just that this is a bridge between uh, earth and heaven it's that this is also sha'ar hashamaim this is the gate to heaven which i think goes very much with what you're saying now yeah yeah, no, that, that's good. That's good. So I was I was thinking about what you were saying, Mark, and it sounds like, you know, part of what we're dealing with with the lampstand here immediately is this idea of this portal. And so in some sense, talking about God's presence among his people. And Mayor, a minute ago, you were commenting about... Well, let me just add something to that because... Okay. Okay, because... The eyes of the king is well known in the Persian period, and many would tie it to this, that the eyes of the king were identified as those secret agents within the empire that were sending information back to the king, the emperor. So it's a very stock term that you get throughout Persian literature of the period. And many have suggested that the use of eyes here is related to that. 
It's that the presence of the emperor is everywhere in the eyes. And so it's, it's, I don't think it's talking about secret agents or whatever, but it's saying that the temple has this role that's playing for the emperor of the entire universe of Adonai, who has this range throughout the earth, and it comes from this place of the, of the temple. So anyways, back to what you were saying. Yeah, well, and I guess I was just drawing on that. So thank you for making that explicit. So, but the, so you've been talking here about this idea of presence, but then Marif, a little bit ago, you made a comment about the, uh, I don't know if you, how you described it, but being relit or renewed every evening. And so, and this idea I don't remember exactly how you put it, but rededication is okay. The word so, that I use. okay, yeah. okay, thank you. So, rededication. Well, when I think of rededication, I'm thinking of a human role, but maybe I'm trying to draw things too much. And so, I'm kind of wondering how these two different perspectives fit or if they do fit. I'm not sure I understood what the two different perspectives were. So, what's well, the contrast? So, it, the idea that that Marx talked about here is this idea that the lamp is tying into the presence of the Lord among his people. Um, whereas you mentioned rededication, and it may just be what I think of when I think of rededication, but I think of an act by people. I don't necessarily but think of God I, rededicating himself. So what's, I guess what my question is, what's going on with the rededication piece? I'm not sure I understand the conflict, but I would go back to the the verse that Mark mentioned earlier, you know, return to me and I'll return to you. That okay, there's, so who is rededicating? Kind of, who is rededicating with the lamp? So the that, that's very important. That is the... The role is fundamentally given over to Aaron a Kohen, given over to Aaron. He's the one that rededicates every day. Initially, obviously, Aaron doesn't live forever. What's very interesting, this is a huge legal innovation, you could say, in uh, Maimonides. He, through very careful analysis of the text, points out that anybody, not necessarily a Kohen, you don't have to be the, the high priest. You don't even have to be a priest. You don't even have to be a Levite would be kosher to light the menorah. But there's a logistical problem, which is that in order to go into that room, you have to be a Kohen. But it's a very deep thing that you don't have to be a Kohen in order to affect rededication. That's a fascinating thing. But yes, the to, to speak directly to what you're saying, the idea is that there's an act from below on the part of humanity and that that is a part of the connection that we have with 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 god so it's an accessibility to god then that even though if we've got a, a portal i guess coming down to earth then we've also got an accessibility where um that doesn't mean that anybody is going in to the Holy of Holies, but they are capable. That sounds to me like what's happening is God is becoming more accessible that, well, because of his presence. So, well, that's the odd thing about this passage. And it has been controversial that one of the challenges people have, have, have had is, okay, how, how can a human figure, you, no matter your view, right? How can two human figures that are identified as the olive trees or the branches or whatever, the source, become the source for the ayan Adonai, the, the, the eyes of the Lord. How, how can a human source be, be something that is for 
the eyes of the Lord that go throughout the earth. I'm not and, sure I understand the problem. Well, it's, it says that these two are feeding, right? Are feeding the seven, the seven lamps. So mm -hmm. the source of the lamps, which are the eyes of the Lord, the presence of the Lord on the earth, are human figures, whether you see it as, as Aaron and you know, Joshua and Zerubbabel, or whether you see it as two prophets, mm -hmm. Haggai and Zechariah, which is my view, uh, there's human figures. And I say, well, that's not a problem because prophets, those that are anointed, those that are prophets, etc., are those that have the presence of God within them. They are, they are empowered by the deity in order to do this. So, but that has been one pushback. How can you have two? So that's why there is one scholar, a Dutch scholar named Walter Rose, who worked at Oxford. And his view was that these were two heavenly beings, actually. These were two, uh, these are Malachim, that were uh, that are the two the two sons of fresh of fresh oil. That's the third kind of view that's out there related to these two figures. What I'm trying to understand is we're saying that this is this seems to be difficult because you 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 have two human figures, however you understand them, who are the source of the oil, which goes into the lamp, which sources the flame, saying, which is the eyes of the Lord that go throughout all the earth. And, and that would actually take us back into the third chapter of Zechariah, which is this very mysterious stone, which has seven eyes on it. And this whole vision in the fourth chapter seems to be a kind of explanation of the third chapter. Zechariah didn't Possibly. understand the third chapter. And so the angel gives him the fourth chapter in order to explain it. Okay, I've never is, heard that one before. That, that's a, it, that's interesting. I'd love to think about that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I because think the seven eyes on that, Malbim. the one stone was is what is engraved on it, the inscription. Right. The inscription, I think the inscription is related to the, the head plate that's on the high priest uh, dedicated to the Lord. Because it refers to, I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day, which appears to be very much closely associated with Yom Kippur. Uh, as a as and a, and directly with the seats you're referring to that that has yeah, a function seats, of atonement so that's, that's right, yes so that's i've always interpreted that as not uh their eyes uh, the word eyes is used i i am mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh the seven facets of this stone or something related to this metal right. plate that's that's on top of the turban of the high of the high priest now, that's interesting yeah it's it's a it's, I, a it's a it's a it's, it's a piece of vocabulary that brings these very close together i think you're right on that that there's a lot of stuff related to the priestly temple kind of universe here between chapters three and chapter four, which are part of this Haftarah uh, at Hanukkah. Yeah. So if, if I can if I can try to dive back into Hanukkah now a little bit. Yes, please. So the the word Hanukkah actually means dedication. So there there's Hanukkah means dedication uh, or initiation. Um, and then there's another word, which I also translated as dedication, which is a significantly different word. Usually in English, we translate kedusha as holiness. But the, if you look at what kedusha is, uh, like, it's a little bit difficult to know what is holiness or what is sacred. These are kind of dusty terms that have these you know, very heavy religious connotations for us in English, but what did they, what does that really mean? Like if you had to define holy, right? So if we look back at what is Kedusha, what does that, what is that fundamentally? 
I believe that fundamentally what we're talking about is essentially dedication. You have something that is separated and it is separated for a particular purpose. Right? It's dedicated to a, a particular purpose. That's essentially what we're talking about. Now, Hanukkah is, is deeply, deeply related to that. And it all comes through these issues of doing things in purity, 